One thing we have to remember is that patients presenting with lupus nephritis, they sometimes don't even know they have it, and we don't even know they have it because it's not like they have arthritis and they have joint pain or they have pleurisy and they have chest pain. They don't feel the nephritis until almost it's too late. That's Dr. Daphna Gladman. She's a professor at the University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine and senior scientist at the Schroeder Arthritis Institute, Crumble Research Institute. She is also Deputy Director of the Center for Prognosis Studies in Rheumatic Diseases, Co-Director of the Lupus Clinic, and Co-Director of the Psoriatic Arthritis Program at Toronto Western Hospital. We are very happy to have her as our guest on this episode of Around the Room. Welcome listeners, I'm Daniel Ennis, and a warm welcome back to my fabulous co-host, Dr. Janet Pope. Janet, how you doing? Good, good, and welcome everybody. Thanks for listening, and um, unbeknownst maybe to Dr. Gladman, this podcast does really well. It puts the CRA on the map. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, uh, that's the Janet Pope effect. Um, so before we get to our guest, I want to announce some upcoming episodes on a whole bunch of interesting topics. We have a new French episode with Dr. Hugh Allard-Chamard talking to Dr. Nicolas Richard. We are also going to be working on some new medical mysteries episodes and indigenous episodes for you. If you have questions you would like answered by the experts, please get in touch through the CRA Twitter account at CRASCRroom or by email info at room.ca. And for future medical mysteries episodes, please get in touch if you have challenging cases you want to present on the podcast. Now, on with the show and our guest, Dr. Daphne Gladman. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So um, you're, you're, of course, a big get for the podcast, and it was actually not that easy to decide what we wanted to talk to you about, uh, but, but we have kind of nailed that down to something in lupus. And um, hopefully we're going to be talking primarily around new therapies in lupus and centering our discussion around lupus nephritis. But before we talk about lupus, I was just while we have you here, I was really hoping to uh, hear from you how you ended up in rheumatology in the first place. I'm, I'm very curious about that. It's the second time today that I'm asked that question. <laughs> Is that right? I was interviewing a potential summer student, and she was interested in that. Excellent. It's, a, it's actually an interesting story. So I, I did my medicine, first-year medicine, at the Wellesley Hospital in Toronto. Wellesley doesn't exist anymore, but that was like the mecca of rheumatology in Canada. At that time, I was actually thinking of going into clinical immunology. So during my year, I did uh, six two-month rotations. The last rotation was in rheumatology. I developed a, a custom when I was still a, a clinical clerk, fourth-year medical student, that I invited people that I worked with uh, to my place for dinner. And usually I would invite the people that were at my level, people that were above me, and the younger staff people. So when I got to rheumatology, Barry Kaler, who uh, had uh, been a chief resident when I was a, an intern at, at Mount Sinai, missed the party. So he said, well, we got to have another one while I'm still here. <laughs> so anyways, we, I invited the fellows and then the residents that were working with me and the two young staff people that was Murray Orwitz and Duncan Gordon. And I'm in the kitchen because I was making Israeli food, so you have to make it fresh. 
So I'm in the kitchen and those two are out in the living room talking to my husband. I'm in the middle of preparation. The two of them show up in my kitchen and they were making me a five-year plan. <laughs> and I say to them, "It's more than just food. <laughs> what are you talking about? And they said, well, since you're going into rheumatology, this is the plan. And I said, who says I'm going into rheumatology? And they say, well, Sonny, that's my late husband, Sonny said. So I said, okay, if Sonny said, it must be true. <laughs> so anyways, we finished the dinner and everything. Everybody goes home. I say to my husband, why am I going into rheumatology? Why, what did you tell them? He says, I was joking. I said to them, <laughs> I said to them, since she got in contact with you guys, she might go into rheumatology. He says, the next thing I know, they jump off their seats they run into the kitchen. He says, I don't know. So I said, okay, why did you tell the joke? <laughs> so he says, you know, this was your sixth service in your residency. First five services, you went to work, you came home, you never talked about anybody, never talked about the patients, nothing. He says, since you started rheumatology, every day you come home, you tell me about the patients. You tell me about your teachers. I figured that's what you wanted to do. So the next day I go to work and those two are waiting for me at the elevator and they take me immediately to Dr. O'Grislow to sign me up. <laughs> that's and so, so I said to him, you know, I was going to take the year off. And he says, well, you know, you might as well come back after six months. So I said, okay. <laughs> so anyway, so I said, what will I do? So he says, you'll take over from Ed Keystone. So I'm sitting there thinking, if he thinks I'm as smart as Ed Keystone, I better not be stupid and refuse. <laughs> so I said, yeah. yes. And then I said to him, but I don't want to work nights or weekends because I was supposed to be off. So he says, nine to five, Monday to Friday. Wow. How could you refuse that? A good negotiator. So here I am. <laughs> so here you are. That's, wow. That's, that's incredible. And for the people listening, these are all giant names that you mentioned. You were in really the land of Toronto was on the map internationally with all these people. Exactly. Crazy, incredible. And what a way to get into rheumatology. How could you refuse them? Yeah. And it seems like uh, perhaps uh, ultimately Sonny's joke was really on immunology because they really, uh, they really missed out on you. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that you stayed in, uh, in rheumatology. No, but, but you see, there was another part to this. And that is when I was doing my first year rheumatology. And, and so I, Ed Keystone was a, a, a fellow at the time. He was doing clinical immunology, actually. Oh, I see. And so I told him that's what I wanted to do. And he said, don't. He says, I'm switching to rheumatology. <laughs> that's great well so, uh, th thanks so much for uh, answering that for the second time i'm i'm impressed that when you were interviewing a med student they interviewed you right back and uh, asked about <laughs> asked about your story um no but, i mean she yeah just at the end of the interview she says could you just please tell me how you why you went into rheumatology that's very <laughs> sweet um so i think that's a nice place for us to start um, because I think that you've had a chance to kind of see the evolution of um, various drugs in uh, lupus and, and you have 
kind of the scope of the field. Um, you know, I, I think that if we center our discussion around lupus nephritis as the starting point, we can kind of work through a little bit around diagnosis, but then kind of spend as much, uh, most of our time in kind of induction and maintenance. And I'm just going to do a little bit of table setting by defining some terms for listeners because not everyone um, is uh, Janet Pope. Uh, so I, uh, first off, just some of the classes of lupus nephritis. So class one, minimal mesangial. Class two, mesangial proliferative. Class three, focal proliferative, so under 50%. Class four, diffuse proliferative. Class five, membranous. And class six, advanced sclerosis. And and maybe just for a little bit of definition of terms, uh, Daphna, would you be willing to kind of describe what is the importance of proliferative versus non-proliferative, focal versus diffuse, crescentic versus non-crescentic? Are these important for, for us um, uh, on the treatment side of things? Or is this more a research tool for prognos- prognosis? I always hope that things that we do in research actually translate into <laughs> the clinic. Of course. So the truth is that they are they are important for prognosis, but not just for research, because we're it's important to us how our patients do in the future. You know, one thing we have to remember is that patients presenting with lupus nephritis, they sometimes don't even know they have it, and we don't even know they have it because this it's not like they have arthritis and they have joint pain or they have pleurisy and they have chest pain. They can they don't feel the nephritis until almost it's too late. Mm-hmm. So, so it is important for us to appreciate that um, patients can present present most mostly they present sort of in an asymptomatic way. The only way we know is by doing a urinalysis and checking their same creatinine. So, but the, but to answer the question specifically, we know that mesangial lesions are generally not associated with poor outcome in terms of kidney function. They may at times when there is also interstitial nephritis. But by and large, mesangial lesions are relatively benign. Mm -hmm. Now, the proliferative lesions, both the focal and diffuse, are very important because they really indicate a more inflammatory change in the kidney and therefore consequences. And the consequences often, not often, but often enough, renal failure. So plus they have a lot of proteinuria and often it's associated with other manifestations of lupus. So those need to be treated really aggressively and the earlier the better. Mm-hmm. Now it's interesting that we used to think that membranous nephritis is not as prognostically bad as proliferative. The truth of the matter is, and we've, we're, we've just presented um, uh, an abstract at the ACR that, uh, that our, one of our lupus fellows actually put together, that in fact, when you look at the long-term outcomes at one year and at five years, they actually have bad prognosis as well. So membranous nephritis is not necessarily benign. So we do. We may need to change our uh, our management 
to uh, to better address these this particular type of lupus nephritis. And of course, the sclerosed glomeruli, you know, that's end stage. There's really the only thing you can do for those is replace. Mm-hmm. And- so luckily, we have not only renal replacement in terms of uh, in terms of dialysis, but we also have transplant, which, you know, pointing out that when I first started, that, I mean, transplant was not that common. That's really helpful just to kind of get us on on um, kind of the same page about the the definitions here and their relevance. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that certainly for, for diagnosis, taking a biopsy of it is a tool that we have available. But I'm wondering if there's, you know, anything in the pipeline or available now that can help us diagnose lupus nephritis without biopsy. You know, sometimes the patients are quite sick and it's not really, um, uh, or ne- nephrology is anxious to do a, a biopsy on, uh, right. you know, a, a sick lupus patient reasonably. Right. What are our tools to kind of get to the diagnosis, but not know the class or can we find the class right. through other means? The bottom line right now, nothing is available, but in the pipeline, there are a number of things. So the number of people that have looked at transcriptomics, one of them is from Baltimore, Fava, and there is a, there's another group, I can't remember where they're from, but the two groups that have actually um, written and done a number of investigations into that. And they're, so you can identify the types of cells but the studies that were done were done on a small group of patients. So to say that this is generalizable is still not front page. Mm-hmm. So it's it's something that will probably happen, but it's not here yet. The other thing that can be done is looking at NETS, which, uh, again, one of our fellows with uh, Joan Wither mm-hmm. um, have looked at, and that's a very promising um uh, process that we can that we can identify, and again, this needs to be validated and and you know replicated before it can be included into uh, uh, into the clinic. So, but so at the moment, our best bet is first to to identify if there's anything going on is to do a urinalysis, and you need to do not just a dipstick. You actually have to look at the urine. Somebody has to look at the urine to look to for for red cells, red cell casts, white cells that are no, nothing that's explained by infection or period or stones or whatever. And and we obviously want to know about proteinuria. On this, Daphne, do you think that we'll have um, in the future, I know AMP is one of many groups where NIH is putting lots of money in for uh, really looking at biomarkers. Do you think that once we have a biopsy in future, that biomarkers alone might be sufficient to say, is this person a rapid responder um, in addition to our urine, the amount of protein, et cetera, um, double-stranded DNA complements improving? And also, often in my in my experiences, it's not the first round of lupus nephritis that fries their kidneys. It's the silent smoldering that they don't get a lot better, or the ones that recur. And um, I don't know how often they, so to speak, change lanes. Like obviously, class six is really 
devastating, but I'm not sure how many threes go to fours. And of course we see the class five membranous that are also, some are membranoproliferative as well. So I guess if we could get some kind of, whether it was serum and blood and urine biomarkers, we would be further ahead. But I agree. Every time you see the, here's the combination of biomarkers and sensitivity, specificity, ROC curves. At the next meeting, why don't we hear about it again? Because it hasn't been validated. Yeah. So so I, 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 I'm pretty convinced that over the next few years, there will be biomarkers and not only will they help us. I, I mean, by the time that happens, it may not matter what the biopsy actually shows because the most important thing is who is going to respond to what. Mm-hmm. So the biomarkers for treatment are going to be most important, but in order to get there, you have to identify the biomarkers for disease and biomarkers for the pattern of disease. Mm-hmm. And, and then you, you can figure out what, what responds. It's going to happen. It's just that it's taking a long time because, you know, small steps, turtles, turtle steps, you know, <laughs> but that's, that's the science, you know, I mean, even 10 years ago, we couldn't talk about it because the, the methodology was not available, you know, so as things move along, in addition to having the, the variety of um, molecular technologies that are available to us now, also AI will help to analyze the data and get confirmation quicker. So it's going to happen. It's just, it's just going to take some time. So at this stage where the, the main test to, pro- to determine class of disease, and since class of disease may determine um, aggressiveness of therapy, where, exactly. that que- where that question remains, a biopsy is essential. But would you say that yes. if you have a patient who has very severe disease, let's say they have, you know, CNS, lupus, um, or, or some other severe manifestation, are those patients in whom you are a bit more comfortable saying, you know, I'm not, I, I, I believe they have lupus nephritis, they have proteinuria, they have hematuria, they have a rise in their creatinine, whether it's three, four, plus, minus five, I don't need to know right now because I know the treatment I'm going to use. Is that a patient in whom you would be more uh, willing to forego biopsy? This is an approach, and some of our nephrologists take that approach pretty much all the time because they don't want to do the biopsy. But the bottom line is you want to know as much as you can about the patient because what you're going to do for their cerebritis may be different or the treatment of your cerebritis may be altered by knowing what kind of kidney disturbance there is, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it turns out to be mesangial, you're not going to throw the book at them. Mm-hmm. But if it turns out to be lupus nephritis, you might actually use one of the drugs that's new that has not been proven effective for, or at least hasn't been even tested in, in, in CNS lupus, because it's very difficult to do these studies, mm-hmm. but you might choose, choose that rather than another drug because you want to get things under control faster. Mm-hmm. That, that makes they, good know, sense. So, so it is important. I, you know, I actually give a talk to our residents, the, even the medical residents, not necessarily the rheumatology residents on, on lupus. 
And one of the points that I always make about the biopsy is there are three reasons to do a biopsy. The first one is to make the diagnosis of lupus nephritis. Because just because a patient has proteinuria or their serum creatinine is elevated does not mean that they have lupus nephritis. And I, have, I, I give them two examples. One is a patient that I saw that I was following with a nephrologist. So the nephrologist saw her first. When she was 18, she had minimal change nephritis. Was treated with prednisone. The whole thing went away. She's fine. I get to see her when she's 24. And now she comes to me with arthritis, rash, positive serology, and she has lupus. She does not have any changes in her urine. She gets pregnant. Now she had develops proteinuria. The nephrologist wants to abort her and put her on cyclophosphamide because she has lupus nephritis. And I say, no, we're getting a biopsy. We got a biopsy. What did the biopsy show? Minimal change nephritis. All she needed was the prednisone. She completed the pregnancy, had a beautiful baby, happily ever after. Mm-hmm. So that's one, one example The other example is actually a case report that was published in the American Journal of Kidney Disease. And this is a a woman who was known to have lupus. She had class 4 lupus nephritis, had been treated with prednisone, cyclophosphamide, doing well. She presents with fever and increasing proteinuria. So they figure she has a flare of lupus nephritis. They put her on cyclophosphamide. Fever gets worse. Proteinuria gets worse. Finally, they say, hmm, maybe we made the wrong diagnosis. So they do a biopsy. And what does she have? Malacoplakia. Now, most people have not heard that term. What it means is an abscess that never made it. So oh, no. in individuals that are immunosuppressed, they don't form the, the out, outside of their abscess. So they just get infiltration of, of, um, of leukocytes ah. everywhere. Mm. And that's what she had. What she One needed more. was antibiotics. Once they put her on antibiotics, and stopping the cyclophosphamide, once they put her on antibiotics, everything cleared away. Mm-hmm. So it's true that it's two cases, but that, those are the cases that teach you that you need the right answer and you need to get the right answer the best way you can. So I, I generally try to push to get a biopsy. So a, we know what we're treating both in terms of diagnosis and in terms of treatment. And we have a prognosis. Mm -hmm. We have an idea of how, how, careful we need to be with the individual patient and we need to tell the patient that because they're not going to feel their kidney and they're going to say oh i feel fine i don't have to see the doctor but then may may be continuing with smoldering diseases janet was saying and those are the ones that will get into trouble in the future Mm -hmm. so so those reasons i think are compelling to try and get the biopsy Unless there is a contradictory situation, you know, if they're on anticoagulants, 
that you can't stop. Yeah. I want Janet, is that essentially your approach as well? Are you usually biopsy forward when it comes to nephritis? I think um, also probably in some of the sites of the listeners, um, sometimes it's this, um, we say, they say that nephro says no, because you're going to start them on MMF and glucocorticoids for say their uh, cardiomyopathy that happens to be their lupus. And so what are we going to add to it? But I fully agree. Diagnosis, prognosis. We've been surprised where someone had passed lupus nephritis who had an APS kidney, had proteinuria, had red cells, didn't really have red cell cast, but not seeing them doesn't mean that we missed, like, you know, they might not always be seen because they were partially treated broke through and they were thrombi all over. And it makes a a huge difference. So we backed off on immune suppression. We made sure we had apt anticoagulation because the patient wasn't adequately anticoagulated at the time, et cetera, et cetera. So I I agree. But Daniel, do you find as well in Vancouver that it might be a little bit difficult to sort of push to get a biopsy when when we say yes and Nefro says not so sure? Yeah, I, I, I think that there's a little pushback in exactly that circumstance where they say the treatment, like you've already decided what treatment you want for the rest of the lupus and we're okay with that for class three or four. So whether it's class three or four, like other than just telling the patient that it's a dangerous disease, which you can just tell them that anyways, like what what are you going to add for the potential risk of the procedure and i do understand that argument but i think prognosis is important looking for those you know rare but important features is important and being and as as you've already pointed out you can't always trust the rise in creatinine the degree of proteinuria or hematuria to tell you precisely what their um classes And I think that the next kind of step in our conversation may start to speak a little bit to now the wider variety of treatments available for lupus and lupus nephritis, and that it is going to start to become a little bit more cookie cutter. It's not just cyclophosphamide anymore, and it's not even just cyclophosphamide or MMF anymore. So it's a more elaborate uh, treatment armamentarium that we have so while maybe guideline right now doesn't distinguish class three and four precisely, um, and and uh, you know you'll correct me if I'm way off on that. Um, eventually, it might. <laughs> so I I think that it should probably be kind of a a tool that we we use to make sure we're not trying to be too clever and diagnose things without you know a, a reasonable low risk biopsy. So. I, I agree. <laughs> so uh, maybe that's that's kind of a good jumping off point for us to talk about treatment. And, uh, you know, I, just because I have you here, um, I, I think I really would like just a, a, a short comment on glucocorticoids, because I think that the treatment regimens that I saw in Toronto when I was there as a resident were uh, and uh, a fellow were a little bit different than I saw here as a fellow. So uh, can I ask you, lupus nephritis or, you know, a patient with severe lupus nephritis or severe uh, lupus coming into the Toronto Western, what is your threshold and do you ever pulse them with steroids up front? What I've been doing is not necessarily pulsing them because there is no evidence that pulse is better than oral. What they need is high dose. If they get 60, 40 to 60 milligrams by mouth, 
it should be just as good. However, in situations where there is an issue with absorption, patient who has got abdominal discomfort, any kind of gastrointestinal issues, people that are very sick, not feeling well, then there's no point trying to push 12 tablets of prednisone into them. So in those situations, I would use parenteral. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean I would give them a pulse, but it means I would give them initially the steroids by infusion. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the, the recent um, ULAR guidelines for the management of lupus, they recommend using a mini pulse. So it's somewhere between 125 and 250 milligrams for three day, daily for three days so that they could use a lower dose of prednisone. I sat on that panel, but I found it very interesting because a study that we did in Toronto that uh, uh, Costas Celius was the, the lead author on demonstrated that high-dose prednisone was better than low-dose prednisone in lupus nephritis. These people did better not only be in terms of the response in lupus nephritis, but also in the ability to reduce the prednisone over time, and therefore they had less damage accumulation. Mm-hmm. The idea of getting less steroids is attractive, but I'm not sure if you can actually stop the steroids any faster if you give the pulse and then after three days you go to a low dose. Mm-hmm. So that that has not been tested. This is based on eminence, not evidence. But it's something that we, we obviously would be nice if we could do some kind of a, a randomized trial, which I don't think is going to happen, but but it would be a good idea to have some evidence to support one approach or the other. Daphna, I I agree that Toronto's had good success. I mean, when we say good success, that means on par with the other groups because obviously we should do better for complete remission. We don't do as well as we'd like, and we will talk about that. But I think it's going to be difficult to discern. So I kind of think of it like making bread. There's lots of recipes. And, you know, what ULAR decided was actually something not tested, whereas the gram times three versus none, starting at medium dose after a gram times three or 500 milligrams times three versus not doing that and starting higher dose and more rapidly tapering of oral. So uh, the systematic review, I thought, was really nice in oral presentation at the ACR, the systematic review of publications. And I think it left me reassured that whatever I do is probably okay and that less steroids are, are it's vogue for good reason that less is the new more um, in steroids but one little this is very little and it's almost nitpicky but a little caveat was that in the belimumab studies you could pulse or not and some groups did some didn't and when they looked at the effectiveness of the adding of belimumab versus standard of care belimumab seemed to exert less of effect, even though it was still positive, but less of a magnitude of effect, at least in the first six months on the group that weren't pulsed. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, well, you know, a gram of solumetal times three or 500 times three is a lot cheaper than belimumab. However, I have totally bought into, and we're going to ask you this shortly, I have totally bought into, unless if there's a reason not to, 
If you're class three or class four, you really should have two immune suppressants plus your glucocorticoids, however you're going to give it, and your hydroxychloroquine and hypertension treatment. And frankly, a flozen, treat the lipids, make sure the fluid balance sure. is good. And yeah, so I think so. And, and I do really agree that if someone's quite nephritic, nephrotic, those nephrotic people with 10 grams of protein who are anasarca, I agree that I don't think they absorb. I think you have to at, at least initially make sure that drugs are getting into them in a way that you think they're not just being out the other end because of the gut edema. Yeah. So that's actually great discussion. So where do you where do you then land? Are are you typically using a milligram per kilogram as your upfront dose even in severe nephritis or you're going lower? No. I do not use milligram per kilogram because this is not the way steroids work. They don't work by weight. No. <laughs> yeah. They work by steroid receptors. And once you have, you've saturated the receptors, there's no point in, in putting any more. It's just going to be peed out. Right. In fact, if you look at the half-life of uh, solumedrol, it's 90 minutes. <laughs> so that's why, by the way, the oral probably is better because it has a more sustained effect. But I, I usually use low, medium, high dose, depending on what the presentation is. And for lupus nephritis, I like to use 40 or more, but not necessarily by weight, more by disease. Gotcha. And I think the ULAR has also looked more at the what manifestations and what, what uh, organs are involved in terms of how to approach. They don't necessarily recommend the IV pulse for everybody, only for people that have very serious organ manifestations. So we've used 40 to 60, but you know, at some point there was a trend to use a, a lower dose of prednisone when we discovered all the side effects and, and, uh, and looked at the, at the damage accumulation. But it turns out that it probably works better to start with if you use a higher dose and you don't have to stay on the higher dose for a long time, but just to get started, to sort of turn things off a little bit. And I agree with Janet. Usually we, we add the immunosuppressive medications pretty quickly. Um, now, there is some evidence to suggest that if you use a dose higher than 40, the patients are much more susceptible to infection. So I try to make sure that they're 40 or less when I add um, the immunosuppressive agent. The only difference is if I'm going to use cyclophosphamide, I might use them at the same time. Interesting. And and just for listeners, I believe the the ULAR recommendation that you're referring to was for the kind of mini pulse of steroids followed by 0.3 to 0.5 milligram per kilogram, um, which which is an interesting kind of regimen and is a, a little bit reminiscent of like pexivast tapers for ankyovasculitis where, you know, you have maybe a week on high dose oral after your pulse, high dose oral, and then you cut it right in half. And, uh, and that was really kind of shocking um, that that seemed to work as well as these long, long, long tapers, high, high, high doses. So, um, but th that would be inter interesting to have in a guideline, but not a great deal of research behind the specific regimen. Exactly. Well, um, I mean, that's how guidelines are made, right? Yeah, you right. have to you have to put something out there. Yeah, yeah. It's based on people's experience. And remember, when you talk about the treatment of lupus, you're talking. I mean, there there were nephrologists in the group as well. Of course. So they had somewhat of an influence here. 
there are going to be a new set of guidelines, by the way, for lupus nephritis. They're starting to work on that now. And and the kidney group has has published theirs as well. The yeah. Group, yeah, but the ULAR is going to have a separate one as well. Oh, excellent. So in transition, and I think the take home is that everybody agrees you try to get the the effective dose of glucocorticoids and not way overshooting where possible. If you do overshoot to rapidly get down, and certainly when I train compared to now, we are using, we're, we're, we're starting lower, but we do pulse and we pulse and we have access because some of the groups that we talk to, it's more difficult to even get them sitting in an infusion room to get their pulse. Um, we pulse and whether it's 500 or a thousand is kind of at our whim. So data free kind of zone, but we try to then start around 40 and quite quickly following the amount of protein, following the uh, red cells, following their other disease activity scores to quite quickly get them down. So I guess we would be more like 0.5 milligram per kilogram or even 0.6. Then I don't think I can honestly say in uh, class three, four, I've never used starting at 0.2 milligram per kilogram, unless it's someone's really big, that seems little, like a little dose to begin with. One thing we have to remember, though, that the proteinuria takes a long time to recover. Yes. So there's not necessarily, it's not necessary to keep the high dose steroids until there's full recovery of proteinuria. Once you see that it's going down, then you can start relaxing the dose. Mm-hmm. But it does take, in some cases, it takes upwards of two years before you get full recovery. My little caveat is always when I'm teaching the trainees is that if you've punched holes in a coffee filter, you're going to be still having coffee grounds in your coffee. And that does never will heal overnight. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's for a sure. good. Um, so I think that's a good jumping off point then to talk about uh, kind of the more modern treatment of lupus nephritis and and therefore some of the newer regimens and agents available. And uh, as you'd mentioned, the uh, KDGO guidelines uh, came out in, in 2023, and it does have some substantial updates compared to, you know, prior ACR guidelines. And so just, just for listeners who may not be uh, familiar, so it, it still um, looks at if you are looking at active class three or four plus minus five lupus nephritis, they suggest corticosteroids, methylpred, um, at kind of at your discretion, 0.25 to 0.5 uh, grams per day for one to three days, you know, so aiming for that lower level, followed by oral steroids. And then we get to the steroid sparing agents. And there's a couple of different regimens that are on offer here. And I'm hoping I'll, I'll, I'll read them out and I'm hoping maybe you can break them down for who, in whom would you use these regimens? Like why pick one over another? And Janet, you alluded to kind of dual therapy here. So the first one is a calcineurin inhibitor with uh, mycophenolate and that's voclosporin. If that's not available, tacrolimus, if that's not available uh, or in a different clinical setting, cyclosporin. Uh, combined with uh, mycophenolate. 
Um, they indicate here that this is for people without significant uh, damage to the kidneys. So a GFR of greater than 45. Is that essentially where you would use this combination? Um, are there any extra renal diseases that kind of make you move towards that particular combo? So again, here is where it's important to know what kind of kidney disease you're treating. Because for proliferative lupus nephritis, it's not clear that the calcineurin inhibitors actually do anything. They do reduce proteinuria. But what do they do to the inflammatory component? It's not clear. So if I have somebody who's got pure proliferative lesions, I probably won't rush to the calcineurin inhibitor. I would treat them with steroids and an immunosuppressive agent, either mycophenolate or cyclophosphamide, again, in the situation where you're worried about not taking oral medications. I've actually used cyclophosphamide in people that I was worried about um, compliance. So at least if they don't show up for their infusion, I know that they haven't received the drug. You know, so we've done that. And also in people that have already an, a, an increased serum creatinine. So if this, even if it, it's not very elevated, but if it's above the normal range, then your window of opportunity is actually not huge. So I would use the the cyclo the neurolupus cyclo uh, program, which is 500 milligrams every two weeks for six, for three months, six times and then switch them to mycophenolate. You could probably start mycophenolate at the same time. I don't think that there's anything against the use of combination of cyclophosphamide and mycophenolate other than some theoretical concerns on the part of some people because in in the clinical trials, people have used the combination of different things. It has not added any toxicity or any danger I would use a calcineuric inhibitor where there was um, clear evidence of, um, of membranous nephritis, because in that co- in that context, they actually would be helpful. Again, as they pointed out, because there is some increase in, in ser- or at least decrease in kidney function with calcineuric inhibitors, you have to make sure that they don't already suppressed that that you would actually put them into total shutdown. Can can I ask a, a couple questions on this though, Daphna? So if someone's nephritic nephrotic, so they're a class four or five, we'll say, would you then say because there's a lot of proteinuria, I'll go for the CNI more than uh, maybe say something such as belimumab, some of the other ones that we're going to talk about would be off label or it wouldn't matter to you just get get the treatment into them, make sure they're effective. So that's the first question. So you're not differentiating. Got it. The next question, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that the data tell us this. I understand the idea of the IV cyclophosphamide absolutely for adherence, but I'm not sure that the data tell us that if somebody's like quite severe lupus, multi-organ will say, um, and they haven't failed, let's be honest, they haven't failed on uh, MMF. They're, they're de novo, um, maybe they're just on Imuran or they're new patients that weren't unwell before. Um, 
I'm not sure that I can differentiate with RCT data that cyclo would be any better in those highly active versus MMF because in many people, you can quite quickly get them to three grams of MMF. I still want to do a combo. I don't think cyclo MMF would be my combo first choice just because it lacks a lot of like RCT data. But I, I, I think in general, because we have so few people that get into complete renal remission, even at 12 and 18 months, um, we seem to double that low number when we give combos from the beginning. So just, I guess, some thoughts on that, because it is, uh, I'm being biased, it's my take on the data. So I choose to kind of interpret it this way. Right. So, I mean, the data actually show that um, there is no difference in in uh, induction between macrophenolate and cyclophosphamide. So there is right. no no reason to choose. And as I said, I only use cyclophosphamide in those situations where there is a preference for a parenteral administration of a drug, not because I like cyclophosphamide. In fact, we wrote a paper many years ago showing that imuran was as good as cyclophosphamide in in our patients, you know, in a, in our longitudinal cohort. You know, cyclophosphamide is certainly not my favorite drug, but I do use it in those situations where you want to get the drug quickly and and it's difficult to rely on a patient taking whatever you want to give them. But I absolutely agree that the combination is important. I don't think that any of our drugs alone work. And you know, Fred Steinberg showed it 50 years ago that that if you combine prednisone and cyclophosphamide, they do better than if you give them prednisone alone. So we know that prednisone alone Absolutely. does not work, especially yeah. for lupus nephritis. Now, we have different combinations now because belimumab is approved and the combination of belimumab with mycophenolate and prednisone certainly is, is a good uh, option. What's the problem? Problem is the cost. And it is now approved on, I think, on um, ODB. On I don't know, it may be approved in, in British Columbia. They seem to be getting drugs a lot faster for rheumatology than in any other part of the country. But uh, but we've had a lot of trouble getting belimumab for non-renal lupus because it's not on the formulary. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, I think for lupus nephritis, they have, I'm, I think, I'm not 100% sure yet. Yes, they have to meet certain criteria, yeah, yeah. but that is that was approved yeah. last year. Thankfully, yeah. it's about yeah. time. But it, but, but it is expensive. It's difficult to get it right away. People might have a large copay. It's not, it is a, a very safe combination, yeah. but it's not as widely available exactly. as it, as we would like it to be. And maybe it'll be bumped in the next few years when we know more about, albeit high dose anaphrolimumab, when those renal trials we read yeah. out, um, obinutuzumab, which is in my opinion, far better on data so far than rituximab, but that has to read out their phase three. Yeah. So you've already kind of talked through um, a bunch of the different treatment options that at least, you know, KDGO guidelines uh, talk about. So for induction, so mycophenolate in addition to your prednisone, cyclophosphamide in addition to your prednisone, or the combination of belimumab with mycophenolate or cyclophosphamide. And 
I, I'm curious, uh, you know, Janet, you were kind of saying that these days you should you should use a combination. Um, and it sounded like you got uh, agreement from uh, Daphna there. Uh, what other combinations are you toying with um, and, and why? So instead, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a, simple, a simple man. And, you know, the idea that uh, I can treat someone with prednisone and mycophenolate alone and that that is as good as cyclophosphamide, that's nice and easy to remember. But I certainly am willing to learn the, the granular details to give better care if there's a good combo that's accessible and 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 clearly has benefit can you can you try and walk me through that what what combos should i be looking at so i mean one of the combos is as you mentioned earlier it's the combination of macrophenolate with the calcium neuron inhibitor and certainly mm-hmm. that would be a good combination for people that have membranous disease right. or or a significant membranous component and not as significant proliferative component, even though it might be there. And that's been tested. There's at least one trial that shows that the combination works well. That actually is an important link to your comment about biopsy, because even if someone does not have the most significant renal failure, right, their GFR is over 45, which is the group of people who who, uh, it's suggested to do the combination for, if you find on biopsy that they have that major mesangial uh, or sorry, a membranous uh, component, then this is a good combo for that subgroup you're saying. So the biopsy actually does influence yeah, your therapy yeah, I, I, yeah. in an important way. So that that is a, a good argument there. Okay, sorry, I don't mean to right. interrupt. And there could be ethnicity that makes a difference. So certainly this is now I'm talking small studies, but RCTs in uh, China and uh, that uh, Pacific Rim area of Asia where cyclophosphamide plus, albeit only two grams of cyclophosphamide per day, and tacrolomus, not necessarily optimal dosing. But that combo with the glucocorticoids, same tapering of glucocorticoids, was superior to cyclophosphamide at what we would have called the old NIH conventional doses. And it was actually better in year two as well. Now, some people crossed over. It wasn't a large N, but it was a study that I go back on because... um, I know that Toronto pioneered way back when cyclosporin and, and lupus, not including non-renal and uh, Daphna, that you were uh, part of designing some of those studies and conducting them. Uh, but I do, I get a sense, and maybe I'm wrong, but I get a sense that tacrolomus, especially if we're not giving high doses, that it's not going to lower the GFR and that it certainly has immune suppressive properties. I mean, we see it in dermatomyositis where it can help um, both muscle, but especially skin and some of these recalcitrant patients. So I don't think of it just as, okay, it's going to help um, it's going to lower GFR. Cyclosporin will eventually at a high enough dose. But I think at tacrolomus, we have a real dose range um, and that it can be a good added immune suppressant to MMF. I've not used it very often in cyclo. That's usually when you're asking about combos. That's like an unproven made up thing that I've done as a last ditch in some patients. But I do think that it's difficult to get tacrolomus because in Ontario, if you're on a government payment scheme, you actually can only get it if you have a transplant patient. 
Well, obviously, I'm, we're trying to prevent transplant, so I just write the code because I, I'm trying to prevent a transplant. <laughs> but that's not appropriate if they have private coverage, yes. And it's difficult to know what level do we shoot for. I don't know. Difficult to know how high do I go then? Do I just go two milligrams and then four? Do well, I go you, to can, six? you can check so the levels. You can, but when you ask what level should we shoot for when I ask the transplant people, they go, I don't know, whatever you like. No, there it's are there vague. are toxic levels they they tell us. I mean, I yes. I work very closely with uh, Michelle Adanovich, who is at uh, at Sunnybrook. We follow people. She follows them very carefully with um, drug levels. Interesting. Yeah, she, we usually use somewhere between five and seven milligrams. Right, and I often am four to six. The so same idea, but four is comfort zone if they're responding. Yeah, but, but tacrolimus has been used um, together with mycophenolate for sure. See, the yes. trouble with vocal sporing is that, A, it's not available in Canada, even though it's a Canadian company that actually makes it. Mm-hmm. But it's not available in Canada. So we can talk until we're blue in the face and say, oh, it's great, but we can't have experience because, right. because it's not available to us. Whereas with I've used tacrolimus, I've used um, cyclosporin in in our lupus patients. And the other thing we use, by the way, for when there's uh, proteinuria, is we use um, ACE inhibitors. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think um, Daphna, your opinions on the flozins, the the uh, the glip uh, drugs that are. Um, for diabetics, but obviously have really nice effects on protecting yeah. the kidney. We actually have a few patients that are nephrologists put on it, but I haven't quite developed a feel for whether it's doing anything. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's something that you can tell in the short term. I think it's only, I mean, you probably have to be on it for about a year before you can start seeing any kind of protection. I don't think it works overnight. I, I do think in guidelines, though, it's going to continue to come up more, even though um, for lupus nephritis RCTs, it's a data-free zone. For observational studies, for other types of nephritis, there there are data, but it's mostly for us um, implying yeah. and that it would probably be also added to the ACE or the ARB. So they're going to end up on more and more drugs. But if we can get more people not getting end-stage renal, not getting scarred up, we're doing them a huge favor. Absolutely. I mean, that's the goal, right? The goal is to prevent damage and and give them a better quality of life. Yeah, of course. And and to that end, just kind of as we wind down here, um, you know, damage versus disease activity is always a really complicated uh, determination, or at least it is uh, for me. And I'm wondering how you define, um, you know, renal response, where as, as Janet gave that helpful analogy, once you've punched holes in the, the coffee filter, you're always going to have grounds in the coffee. So, you know, there has to be some allowance for some residual proteinuria, residual hematuria. What, what, what do you consider renal response? It's quite different across uh, trials. I don't particularly like residual hematuria because mm. that usually reflects some nephritic issue. But we do, I mean, we, we, we do allow patients to have some proteinuria, but not a lot of proteinuria, mm. right? So if it's less than a gram, 
we might tolerate it. But you know, if you listen to Brad Rovan, he says you should repeat the biopsies because some of these people yes. that we think have done well, even without persistent proteinuria, they actually have disease activity. And this reminds me of, you know, work that, that I did actually when I just started my career is looking at doing biopsies in people that had nothing. And we, had, we actually ended up, we ended up with four people that had proliferative lupus nephritis. Three had diffuse and one had focal. No proteinuria, no cells in the urine, normal creatinine. And the only reason we got the biopsy is because Murray Orwitz had a study where we were trying to biopsy everybody. So, and, and, and there was a guy by the name of uh, Katz from Chicago who basically showed the same thing. Patients with lupus may have lupus nephritis that is totally asymptomatic and no evidence on your analysis. And you wonder, is that a lead time or would they always be under the radar screen, but still eventually present with a low GFR someday? Who so knows, this is right? the problem. You see, I, so I, I actually have a couple of people who had not a lot of stuff in the urine. And I wanted to do the biopsy because they had very persistently low complement, high DNA binding, and the rest of their lupus wasn't all that severe. So I managed, I mean, I was working at Women's College at the time, and Dan Catron, who was the nephrologist there, was also a very curious guy like me. And, and so he did the biopsies. And they both had diffuse proliferative lupus nephritis. And the one woman that followed my instructions has done very well. She actually is in Vancouver now. She managed to get a PhD and she managed to have a baby and she's doing very well. The other woman, unfortunately, did not follow instructions, ended up dying within a few months because she quickly went into renal failure. So the other thing that's very important to appreciate is the earlier we treat the better the patients do. So you have to recognize the disease early, make the diagnosis, get the biopsy, figure out the treatment. And if you do that, you may not need to go to the more potent medications. Just using prednisone, even Imuron could work. You know, some people don't tolerate MMF, but they tolerate or, or can't afford MMF. But they, but Imiran is cheaper, and also less pills. We had a, a patient in our clinic last week who refused to take MMF because she had to take six pills. She wanted to go back to her Imiran, where she only had to take two or two and a half pills a day. So, some people have their own ideas of how they should be treated. But, anyways. I think that if we treat early, catch early, treat early, we probably prevent a lot of consequences. And it's true for most of our diseases, but certainly true for lupus nephritis. Because the longer, the longer stuff, the inflammation stays there, the worse it becomes. And damage and probably, again, some of these um, at first subclinical, there's probably people with genetics of responding well 
metabolizing the drugs probably in a good way. People with genetics that they're going to get damaged more than you would suspect for the disease activity. And certainly in Canada, with the multiple ethnicities of patients we're treating, um, it seems that as a, for instance, our Native peoples and um, African Canadian, which is multiple, it's not just from one country, but that they will get more damage. Asians will get more nephritis, but less damage, but anyone can damage. And um, the Caucasians are somewhere more damaged than Asians, but um, the rate of lupus nephritis seems to be some in some clinics highest in some of our Asian population. So we've got people that have active nephritis, some people that have more damage and more scarring and people in between. And it's such a range. And that's where I think biopsy and even rebiopsy, even when they haven't met a target or when they recur, uh, can be highly informative, which takes us back to you got to know what's going on to try to guesstimate the most accurate treatment. See, I tell the patient that if they don't allow us to do the biopsy, they expect us to treat them with a blindfold. Nobody wants to do that. No, not acceptable if we don't have to do it that way. Well, it's it's certainly a very humbling disease. And this has been a very humbling conversation. I still have a lot to learn about not that uncommon a disease. Dan, don't feel bad. We still all have lots to learn. <laughs> That that's humbled me even more. Well, no, no. We're, I mean, we're learning. We're learning from each patient as we go along because we still don't know it all. Well, thank you for sharing all that wisdom with us. That was a, a great conversation, Janet. Of course, thanks so much for being here, and uh, we'll let you go. Um, but thanks again. Thanks so much, Daphna. That was excellent. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R Room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Aaron Stewart. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. And as always, Dr. Janet Pope. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fonwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening.